Hey guys, welcome back. Uh, last week we were talking to Ralph Ellis about um, some stuff around ancient Egypt and uh, ancient Israel and um, mostly kind of around the, the Exodus and the Pharaohs and stuff like that. Um, we're going to continue that con same conversation, uh, but we're jumping ahead to um, a couple, a, about a thousand years later um, to around uh, the time of what we now call the time of Christ. So uh, around the BC to AD transition. And uh, we're going to be talking about uh, Jesus, Josephus, uh, the Apostle Paul, and a bunch of Roman emperors, and uh, the kings of Edessa, and some other really fascinating topics. So here we go. We're jumping right in. Oh, we could, we could, uh, we could have a look at the New Testament, I suppose, where that came from. Sure. Um, so yeah, I'm I, I'm really fascinating and fascinated by this con concept of um, like in between the gospels, uh, which are focusing on Jesus as a man and what he uh, what he did on Earth, and then uh, there's seems to be to me that there's a, a stark contrast between the stories of the gospels and the. Uh, philosophy i suppose you could say of paul uh the, saul the apostle paul and it's to me he so the gospels are talking about a man named jesus who went around and healed people paul is suddenly talking about this um this like construct that is that he calls the christ uh he overlays it on top of this man jesus um but really it's not it's almost like that's jesus isn't even the point it just happens mm. to be on that guy um but he's talking about this um like cosmic co like what is he talking about what is this christ because he doesn't really explain it very well and it really has uh, seems to have nothing to do with what jesus was talking about no, it, it is entirely different. And, and obviously you've noticed that. But um, yeah, many people within Christianity don't. Um, that there were two religions at the time. So we had the Church of Jesus and James, which was a uh, messianic Nazarene Judaism, quite fundamentalist, anti-Rome. And then we had the religion of Saul, because Saul went off teaching to the Gentiles. He became the apostle to the Gentiles, became pro-Roman. Uh, and teaching what I call simple Judaism because he was against he he realized he could not teach Judaism to Gentiles they just wouldn't accept it they wouldn't accept um, uh, circumcision for a starters um, and so he couldn't do that so he went to James the brother of Jesus and said look uh, can I have a simplified form of Judaism because they're not going to accept circumcision and James said, yes, this is all in the Gospels. This is in Acts of the Apostles. And James yeah. said, yeah, sure you can. Um, you can teach this new religion, which has, um, what does it say? Don't uh, eat animals sacrificed to idols. Don't drink blood. Don't eat strangled animals. And don't commit fornication. And by fornication, they meant incest and things of that nature. And that was the four rules of simple Judaism. So the whole of... You know, Deuteronomy and Le Leviticus had just gone out of the window, you know, all of Mosaic yeah. law. And so Saul went off teaching to the Gentiles with this new form of simple Judaism. Yeah. And so these two religions were entirely different and they became enemies of each other because Saul's church became more successful than the church of Jesus and James because they could only teach to Jews, whereas Saul could teach to anyone, you know, any Gentile okay. in, in the whole of the Roman Empire. Yeah, okay, I, I get that. I guess um, I, I agree with what you're saying about Paul. I guess I'm not so convinced about the Jesus side of it, because um, really, even though Jesus did say, you know, not one jot or tittle shall pass away uh, of the law, um, he didn't really seem to give two shits about the law in terms of like telling people what to do. He lived by it, mm. certainly. He saw the law as something that 
and, and this is what the law is intended, in my opinion, and, and that goes for any law or any set of uh, morality or, or ethics that you choose, it's for you. So I can choose it for me. I can choose to live under the law or whatever law I choose, um, but I never have the right to impose that law on anyone else. And, and that's to me what I see Jesus doing is that he is, he's placed himself under whatever set of laws. Uh, he seems to go by a, a fairly traditional um, Jewish law with exceptions because he talks about the Sabbath and uh, certain other topics in somewhat radical ways that, that really offended the, the church leaders at his time, uh, the, the mm. Pharisees and whatnot. But um, when, it comes, when it comes to Jesus' um, like sort of teaching, I suppose, which he did very little of, really, um, but he, he did do it occasionally. And when you get these glimpses into what he's uh, trying to communicate to people in terms of how they ought to live, it's even more stripped down than Paul's. Really, all he's saying is, don't be an asshole. And um, whatever, yep. it's kind of open to interpretation. Yes, but you've, you've got to remember that this book wasn't written by Jesus and James. And okay. so this book was written by Saul more than anything else. And yeah, so he gospels. became the chief. Uh, yeah, no, I think his fingers were all over the Gospels because um, the Gospel of Luke and actually the Apostles, a lot of that information comes out of Josephus Flavius. Oh. This is the reason why they say there's a 40-year gap between the events of the, um, the gospel story in the AD 20s and 30s, uh, but it wasn't written down until the AD 70s. Okay. And they won't tell you why that. They say, oh, there was just a period of um, oral transmission. They couldn't write. You know, they were illiterate, honest. Yeah. Nothing, nothing to do with that. You know, but Saul himself shows that they were highly literate, as was Josephus Flavius, highly literate. Of right. course, they could write it down immediately. The reason why they could not write it down in the 1830s is because those events hadn't happened yet. All of those events happened in the 1860s. And so when they were writing these uh, uh, Gospels, they were writing immediately after the events that they told. But those <clears throat> events okay. happened in the 1860s, not the 1830s. Okay. So... A, there's a dislocation in the chronology for a starters, and I can prove that. But B, this story was written by the Saul stroke Josephus character, and therefore he had editorial control over what it was saying. And what he wanted and what Rome demanded was a Rome-friendly form of Judaism. Mm. And so he adapted the story to make it Rome-friendly. That's why this Jesus character turns the other cheek. He renders unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar. He says, um, or at least uh, Saul does, um, honor and obey your, your masters, your, your Roman masters, because they are appointed by God. Well, this is just superb stuff, isn't it? It's just made for Rome. But it's not the original story. It's been Romanized uh, because the original story was unpalatable uh, to Vespasian who won the Jewish revolt and became the next emperor um, and so we have to go back into why how did we get this story which is missing from the historical record like all of these characters like like in the Old Testament we've just been looking in um, all of these characters are missing from the historical record somehow you know the most famous characters of the last 2000 years you know Je Jesus James and Saul all missing from the historical record. We don't know who they are. How right. did that happen? Well, it's because they made this deliberate adjustment. They yeah. I mean, revised the chronology. We have pretty good records from 2,000 years ago. Like yes. a lot of records. Which is why they can't find Jesus, because we have these good records, and he's not there in those good records. And so how do we get this situation where a king has gone missing from the historical record. How can we have a king who was honored as a king, who was famous enough to be famous and be written about, that goes missing from the historical record? Right. Well, there is so such a king. That also happened to Akhenaten, though. 
Yeah, Almost. he was deleted. From, yeah, yeah, but it was done deliberately, and it yeah. was done deliberately to the Jesus character as well. Right. He was deliberately erased from um, from the history, and we know this is so because we're going to start talking about Edessa. And if you go through the works of Josephus, and now we have those wonderful uh, computer-based um, books, so you can type in, you know, various search terms, and you can type in Edessa. You can type in the king of Edessa, who is called Abgarus or Abgar. Uh, you can type in Manu, who was the next king, and it'll just say, nothing found. And yet these were the most influential kings of this era in this particular uh, area, in this region. And yet they have been deleted from the works of Josephus. Oh, How wow. did that happen? Okay, it's so because first of all, where, where, where is Edessa? Edessa is just north of Aleppo in northern Syria. So it's in modern Anatolia. They call it San Lurfa. Um, okay. But it was just, oh, I don't know, 100 kilometers north of Aleppo. So it's in That's Mesopotamia. Pretty actually close to um, Gobekli Tepe. Oh, it's right next door. Hmm. It's, it's like 10 kilometers away. <laughs> ah, interesting. It is the city next door. Okay. Um, and I didn't know that the first time I went there because I was going to look at Edessa. And, and the uh, uh, hotel manager who, who was trying to act as my guide because uh, he was doing nothing, he said, do you want <laughs> to visit Gobekli? And I said, well, yeah, but how far away is that? And he said, well, it's just over there. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Okay. Well, let's go and do that. Um, so yes, it's at Gobekli Tepe. That is Odessa. Um, and it was a new city-state that was set up in the first century. Okay. So how do we get this new city-state in the first century? And how do we get it being covered up by Rome? Because Rome doesn't want you to know anything about it. Well, it was covered up by Rome because they led the Jewish revolt against Rome in AD 66. So they upset the Romans. That's why they got deleted from history um, for oh. attacking Rome. Um, and so how did they get there in the first place? Well, we have this complex story. I think we have enough time to go through this. We have a complex story um, which weaves the gospel story back into history because, of course, at present, it's totally divorced from history. You can take virtually anything from the gospel story and not really find its equivalent within history, which is odd for the most famous book in the world, and you can't place anything. And mm. it just divorces the whole of, you know, the gospel story from what was going on at the time. The Romans are just sort of there in the background somewhere doing nothing, you know. Hold on a minute. They owned the place. Yeah. They were having a tax dispute. Who were they having a tax dispute with? It was Rome. Um, and so we've got to put Rome back center stage into this story again. And, and how do we do that? Well, there was a missing king, as I say, the Odessan kings. How did we get there? Well, we go back to um, uh, Julius Caesar, uh, Ides of March, 43 BC. <coughs> right. And uh, so he was murdered. And his wife at the time, he had two wives, I suppose, was Cleopatra. <laughs> And she flees back to Egypt. But Cicero says she was pregnant. And oh. the last thing that Cicero wanted was a scion of Caesar, an heir to Caesar, becoming the next emperor of Rome. But then a few months later, the problem has gone away. So why did it go away? Well, either Cleopatra had a miscarriage or the child was a girl because a girl could not become an emperor of Rome. And so Cicero was happy. So we have this lost daughter of Queen Cleopatra. And then we move on about 20 years, and we now have Augustus, is the new emperor, and he's sorting out his borders. And he gives to Yuba II, who is the king of Mauritania, North Africa, um, he gives him the daughter of Cleopatra, Cleopatra Selene. So this minor minnow of North Africa gets a, a queen and a goddess, you know, an incarnation of Isis as his bride. You know, he did very well from this. And he set up quite a, um, a successful and, and wealthy kingdom in North Africa. They got an enormous great tomb there uh, out in, um, uh, in modern 
I was going to say Jordan, but it's not. It's the next one along. Um, anyway, just down the road, just to the west of Jordan. Uh, sorry, Jordan. Do I mean Jordan? No, I'm getting all the names wrong. Anyway, it's in North Africa. It's it's uh, Gaddafi's old place. Um, anyway, so Augustus has to sort out his eastern borders as well. And there the king is, is called Phraates IV. And so he gives Phraates IV a concubine, a prostitute. Mm -hmm. And you're thinking, no, this isn't going to work. You know, Rome had already lost three or four legions to the Parthians. They were the feared enemy. Um, Rome could never defeat them. And yet Augustus gives him a prostitute. That's not going to work. But Phraates IV was so enamored with his, his new courtesan that he made her his chief wife and the queen of all Parthia. Huh. It's quite clear from, from the records we have that she was the lost daughter of Queen Cleopatra. And that's why she was such a, a prize for the king of Parthia. Okay, so wait, is, was, is it the same woman who was uh, in North Africa? No, that, that was a daughter from uh, Mark Antony. So Cleopatra had a daughter and a son from Mark Antony, and okay. they were called Cleo, uh, Selene and Helios, the sun and the okay. moon, no less. Oh. Um, but she had a son with Caesar, who was called um, Caesarian, and we don't know what happened to him. He disappeared. But there was another lost daughter as well. So she had at least four children. Okay. And this lost daughter is the one that went over to Parthia, Persia. And her name is Quinthia Musa Orania. And she's been deleted largely from history. Nobody knows about her. Um, and, and Josephus tells us this ribald story about the history of Thea Musa. Uh, and everyone thought it was just um, a fantasy of Josephus until they yeah. started finding all of her coins across Parthia. And so, yes, I, I she find was a it, real queen. Th this is another funny thing that, that keeps popping up. So you have um, these extremely uh, well-respected men, Josephus being one, another being Plato, and everything they say is absolute gold, except for this <laughs> one thing that we don't like. With, with <laughs> yes, Plato, which... <laughs> of course, it's Atlantis. Well, Plato is the brilliant, you know, he's we, everything we know is based on Plato except Atlantis, he was lying. Yes. Yeah, come on. Go, anyway, go, yeah, it's, it's go true, on. isn't it? Um, yes, the, the one thing they didn't like about Josephus, they say, oh, it's, he, he made up this story. Yeah. Um, but then they started finding her coins, and then they found a bust of her. And this is another reason why I think she's related to Cleopatra, because if you look at the bust of Thea Musa, it looks exactly the same as, as Cleopatra. Um, so she became the queen of, of Parthia, but then she upset the aristocracy because she killed her husband. She was rumored to have poisoned her husband, the king. And she became, she set herself up as the queen of Parthia. This was in uh, 2 BC. And she took her, her son as, as her husband, and he's called Phratases. And so they ruled as, as mother and son for six years. But she was kicked out because obviously this was an un unpopular move. They didn't even want a queen, let alone, you know, whatever happened to her husband. Uh, so she was kicked out of Parthia in uh, 4 AD, AD 4. And so now we have the uh, biblical nativity story. Because what is the biblical nativity? It never made any sense. You know, you've got this king. Jesus was called a king on 36 occasions. Um, he's on the move for some reason in a stable because they've got no palace to stay in. Um, and something to do with the Eastern star, the star prophecy. We'll talk about that in a minute. And he was visited by the Persian Magi. The three the kings. Why on earth would the pa Persian... Hmm? Or, or the UFOs. Or the UFOs. Why on earth would, would, would the Persian Magi be interested in a Jewish carpenter in Judea or Syria? It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. 
but with this Parthian story, we now have the nativity story. We have a royal family who has been lost from history, on the move because they've just been kicked out of Parthia uh, with 200. Um, they didn't come out on their own. They came out with 200 uh, aristocrats and 600 um, cavalry. So, you know, they had a few um, retainers. I guess that's few, why um, there was no room in the inn. <laughs> yeah, there were so many of them. Yeah, Too many people. <laughs> <laughs> so they're on the move. They don't have a palace. They might have to stay in somewhere slightly more humble. And of course, if there was a birth at this time, of course, the Persian Magi would come to see this birth because whoever was being born was a potential uh, king of Parthia. So of course, they would um, arrive and have a look and bring gold, frankincense and myrrh. Right. So, um, so I got a question about Parthia. So I assume just from etymologically that that's the same word as Persia. No, it's not. It came came from the uh, Parthi. So um, Persia in sort of like 300 BC was Greek. So it was all Greek speaking at that time because of mm -hmm. the campaigns of Alexander. And then the <clears throat> Greek influence started to uh, reduce. Its original name was Persia, of course. We, we tend to use it because we know what it means. But it was Greek up until, say, I don't know, um, 100 BC. And then they had incursions from the Parthite who, who came out of um, sort of like the Caspian Sea sort of region, that sort of area. Oh, okay. um, and they started invading and started taking over that region. And they were known as the Parthians. Okay. And so, but it's but still the, around the Euphrates Tigris area? Yeah. It's Mesopotamia, okay. it's Iraq, it's Iran, all of that sort of area. And okay. that was taken over by the Parthians. And so I, I tend to call it par, uh, to Persia, but in truth, it was then at that time, all of the monarchs were Parthian monarchs. Okay. With names like Frates and Arodes and so on, they were all Parthians. Right. So, so it um, has nothing to do really with the. It's a. It's the same area as Sumer and Babylon, but yes, a, an absolutely. entirely different culture. Um, I, well, the, they had hangovers, of course, from the previous cultures. They had mm. um, traditions going back into into Persia. They had lots of traditions going back into uh, Greece, of course, because they were Greek. They were still speaking Greek up to, uh, you know, 50 BC. They were mostly speaking Greek. Um, but then the language changed and it didn't turn into a Parthian that language was not appreciated. Apparently, it wasn't very sophisticated. So they spoke Aramaic instead. Oh, okay. So the language of that region became Aramaic, Hebrew. Okay. Which is, yeah, like a Sumerian Hebrew, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's and then, like... okay. <clears throat> so now, okay, so get back to the Magi. So where are these guys coming from? And, and what do you know about them? Well, they would have come out of Babylon, basically, what we sort of know as Babylon. But of course, it wasn't called Babylon at that time. So they're coming out of Iraq. So um, they're Parthian then? Yeah, they're, well, they're Parthians. But of course, <clears throat> being the priesthood, they would have allegiances back to, you know, the previous religions of Greece okay. and Persia. Okay, but um, what you're, I guess what you're getting at is that this royal family who, who has fled Parthia um, still had enough uh, ties or respect, at least within the um, the priesthood of the of back home, so that these priests uh, felt it important to come pay respects for at this birth. Absolutely, because these these people were the sons of gods, so you had to honor the gods, even if they had been thrown out of the country. Right. Um, and we have a different tale from Josephus Flavius. So Josephus Flavius gives us this story, but he also gives us a very, very similar, and I say connected story about the Babylonian Jews being thrown out of Babylon and being resettled in Syria and modern Jordan on the eastern borders of the Near East, um, of, of the Levant. Is, is that the it, same, is that the same, um, narrative uh, as we read about in the book of Hezekiah and uh, or, um... no that's a diff that's a slightly different era but yes it's linked I do write about that but yes the um, the, the 
The Jews have been exiled into, into Babylon by uh, Nebuchadnezzar. That was uh, 600 odd BC. And they've been right. there and been very successful for many, many centuries. And for whatever reason, some of these Babylonian Jews were thrown out. This was the beginning of the first century again. And I think this concept and description of the Babylonian Jews being thrown out is the same story as Queen Thea Musa Orania being thrown out of Parthia. It's the same story because her daughter became a, became a Jew. They were Jews. They were Nazarene Jews. Um, so the story links up and these Babylonian Jews were given lands on the eastern borders of Rome in order to separate Rome from Parthia to stop more border disputes. They became the sort of uh, Ukraine of the first century, sandwiched between two major empires. They're stuck in a DMZ. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It, very much so. Um, and they played that, well, after the <clears throat> Jewish revolt, which went badly wrong, they played that for like 250 years quite successfully, playing the one empire off against the other and always being the, uh, the meat in this empire sandwich. And were um, they supposed was, to be uh, like, did they have a peace-loving kind of an attitude or not? No, they were fully armed. Um, they, they came out of Parthia with, as I say, 600 cavalry, the, the, the feared archers, the, the mounted archers of Parthia. So they were fully armed and they could defend themselves. But their, uh, the idea was that they would be a buffer state, you know, so yeah. that Rome didn't actually physically have to um, square up against Parthia. And, and they played that, uh, that role quite well for, for many years. But here we have in this story an unknown monarchy who suddenly appeared in Judeo-Syria in AD 4 who were visited by the Persian Magi. It's the same story as the Nativity story. Mm -hmm. And so we get these links between the Odessan story and the... Um, and the biblical story where it all starts to match up and so we find lots of similarities like for instance um in acts of the apostles one of the famous things that happens was a famine in judea which was in ad 48 so we're moving on a few years now uh in ad 48 there was a great famine uh and the queen who gave famine relief money to save Judea from starvation was Queen Helena, who came from the same region. She was the daughter of Theomusa Orania. So we're moving on one generation here. Um, and Josephus again gives us this full story. And he says that she was the queen of Adiabene. But there is no evidence in the historical record for Adiabene ever existing. So we have this, and we know Queen Helena was a real queen. Um, they're, they're just uncovering her palace down in Jerusalem. Uh, and she had the biggest tomb in, in Jerusalem. So we know she was a real queen. Um, and, but there's no evidence that Adiabene ever existed. So there's a bit of a question mark here. Which is supposed to be the country that she was ruling over? Uh, the city-state, the province city? okay. that she was. It's supposed to be over by Mosul. Um, they call it Arbella. It's supposed to be that region again. So we're, we're going across the Tigris now, deep into Iraq. Um, and they were supposed to be Jews, of course, because Queen Helena was a Jew. Um, but there's a hole in this story. It doesn't match up uh, quite <clears throat> correctly. But if we look in Acts of the Apostles, um, this famine relief money was actually given by a prophet called Agabus. Agabus. I've heard that Agabus. before. Is King Abgar Abgarus. It's King oh, okay. Abgarus of Edessa. That's the Edessan king at this time was called Ab Abgarus. And so it's quite clear that this Agabus that's mentioned in Acts of the Apostles is the king of Edessa. So we, he does get a mention. He's just been covered up. Um, they changed his name to a locust. Uh, I'll talk about that in a minute. And so we have the same famine relief money story. And that remained a bit of a problem for a while because now we've got two different monarchs that are supposed to be giving this famine relief money. But when I started reading the Syriac historians like Moses of uh, Corinne and John the historian, uh, they say 
that Queen Helena was married to King Abgarus of Edessa. So now we can square this circle. We can now put this Queen Helena character where she should be, which was as a queen of Edessa. So Adiabeni is, is just a, a make-believe that Joseph, because as I said before, Josephus was not allowed by Roman law to mention Edessa. It's been deleted from history. And so he called it this made-up name, which was Adiabeni. So she was the queen of Edessa. And they gave the famine relief money. But the odd thing is that that famine relief money was taken to Jerusalem by Saul and Barnabas. So right. now we know that Saul, the biblical Saul, was an ambassador of Edessa. That is how close they are to the biblical story. Now we can start mixing and matching them and seeing the links between the two, because Saul, the guy who wrote most of the Bible, most of the New Testament, was an ambassador of Edessa. So he basically worked for the, the king and queen of Edessa. Yes. And do you, like, what would that, is he like a spy uh, is he? Uh... Uh, he became later. No, he was an ambassador. So he was actually from Edessa. He was linked in some manner to the Edessan royalty. Um, and we've got a good idea that that was so because, uh, of course, Saul is known as a tent maker. But Saul, when he was in prison, because he was imprisoned by the uh, Jerusalem authorities for about uh, six years or so, when he was in prison, he was visited by all of the governors of Judea came to visit him in prison and the king and queen of Judea, uh, Agrippa II and Berenike. They all came to see him in, in prison and to ask for bribes from him. Uh, and this guy is supposed to be a that? tent maker. Yeah. He must have been the richest tent maker in the whole of the world, you know. Yeah. So we know there is something wrong with the story here. So what are they saying? Well, going back on my philosophy that most of this story is 90% correct if you translate it properly. Mm -hmm. um, he wasn't a tent maker. He was a Sukkot maker. And a Sukkot is a tent. It comes from the festival of tents in Judaism. And it's a... Um, it's, it's a, a, a mock-up of the tabernacle. So they make, everybody makes a, a tabernacle, oh. except it's a tent, and it's known as the Festival of Tents. And well. Queen Helena was <clears throat> known for having the largest Sukkot in the whole of the Levant, the whole of the Near East. Holy and so cow. it's quite obvious that Saul was a Sukkot maker for Queen Helena because she was the famous queen who had the biggest Sukkot. Okay. Now, if anybody listening has read has read my UFOs in the Bible book, and you know this kind of weird, crazy stuff that I'm saying about the tabernacle there, this is even crazier. That's it. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, they have a festival oh, wow. of, of this tabernacle, yes. Yeah. The tabernacle was on the Exodus. It was the mobile temple. And mm -hmm. so everybody makes their own little mobile temple, and they, they sit and they live in it for two or three days during the festival of of uh, Sukkot. Yeah, and that it, it's modeled after not only the tabernacle, but the tent of meeting before that, which is uh, where Moses would and Aaron and who, who actually anybody uh, could go into it and inquire of the Lord and um, possibly see some kind of, um, I don't know, maybe like, um, <clears throat> uh, what, what's the word now? Um, anyway, there, there might have been some, some alien technology involved. And uh, if, if, if anybody wants to hear more about that, you'll have to read my book because I'm not going <laughs> to <laughs> waste Ralph's well, time. We, we, have a, we have a link there with Edessa because, of course, Edessa had the Ark of the Covenant. Oh, really? In the first century, between the first and second centuries. It was what? in Edessa. We have oh. images of it. It's on their coins. Um, and the sacred stone that it contained. Wow. And of course, the sacred um, stone was, was known as the Holy Grail. Okay. that's Oh, I thought the Grail was supposed to be the cup that Jesus drank out of. 
it has many incarnations. One of them is is the cup, but only because the the Sangreal is is the Sangreal. Um, it's the uh, holy blood, not the cup. Um, oh, okay. This and, and blood, we get yeah, that okay. from Arthurian legend tells us this. Right. But, um, um, what does the stone look like on the in the Edessan images? It's um it's the omphalos from uh, Greece. It's it's conical, so it's not very high. It's probably about sixty centimeters high, I suppose. Conical, like a little pyramid. Um, I, I'm going to need you to send a picture of this. Yeah, well, we have several because they're on okay. the coins, and uh, th this <coughs> was a famous stone, and it went, it travelled all over the place with many people. It was the omphalos um, of Delphi uh, in Greece, but it went to Parthia with Alexander the Great, and we got lots of images from uh, Greek Parthia. But it obviously came back again. I think it came back with Thea Musa Orania because she came back in, in the turn of the first century. And suddenly this stone ends up in, in Parthia. Uh, sorry, in Parthia, in Edessa. And we have images of it, but the images of it in Edessa are in the, um, the Ark of the Covenant. So you can't see the stone itself. You, all you can see is the Ark of the Covenant. Oh, okay. uh, but then it went down to Syria, um, Syria proper to uh, the Amesan kings. There was another very similar monarchy called the Amesans. They were down um, near Homs and Hama in Syria. And we have images of it there where it's just sitting in a temple. And again, it's a conical. It looks like a... They used to make sugar loaves like that, I think. Sort of um, conical sort of stone. And then it went to um, Rome with uh, Emperor Elagabalus because Elagabalus was from this region. He was a Syrian uh, priest king of the Elagabal. He worshipped this stone. And so he took it to, um, uh, to Rome, and it was there in the early third century. But uh, it, it wasn't appreciated. He wasn't appreciated. He was, he was murdered after only four or five years. And then the stone disappears, so we don't know what happened to it after that. Right. Uh, there's but the claims it that was, it's in Ethiopia. What do you think of those claims? Yeah. No, they, they've only got the, uh, what do they call them? The Taliots or something they call them. Um, they've only got tablets, but they're replicas made of wood. They're not even made of stone. Mm. And they look like a standard um, tablet that Moses brought down, you know, from uh, Mount Sinai. So they don't have okay. the real one. The okay. real one, if anything, went to, <clears throat> went to Scotland, and and the Scottish, um, the Scottish Templars still say that they have it uh, up okay. in Scotland. Hmm. Um, no evidence that that is true, of course, but that's what they say. But right. the reason why it was um, feared by some people, and the reason why we get this story from Arthurian legend of the sword in the stone, because it's the same stone, um, is that it was supposed to be highly magnetic it was a meteor uh, mm -hmm. uh, an iron meteor and it was magnetic um and that's why in our theory and legend the sword got stuck on a stone because if okay. if you took your sword anywhere near it you know the god would just pull the, your sword out of your hand it was okay. a very very strange force to some, someone who had never come across magnetism before um, oh wait! Isn't King, there a stone in in Edinburgh Castle? There's a stone that there might be, but um, uh, you mean the Stone of Scone? Yeah, but that was um, an imitation. That wasn't a real okay. one. That was taken um, by Edward the First down to Westminster uh, back in the uh, 13th century AD, okay. uh, and so we anyway. gave it back to the Scots in the in the 20th century. Okay. So, but in any case, there they all the stories seem to be that the, there's a stone that has some kind of power. So, whether it's magnetic yeah. or um, maybe radioactive or something, who knows? Well, that's why the um, that's why the chief disciple of of uh, Jesus was called Peter, the stone. Oh, because he was the guardian of the stone. Okay, so his so title was Peter Kephas. His name was Simon, of course. People seem to forget this. His name was right. Simon. He wasn't called Peter at all. He was given the title Peter Kephas, which means stone stone. Right. 
So did he actually have the stone? Like He was the keeper of the stone. Um, in Odessa, they called the keeper of the stone the Buddha, was the name they had in, in Odessa for it. But obviously in oh. the gospel story, he was called the stone. And one presumes he was the keeper of the sacred stone. Amazing. Uh, the Buddha. Yeah, the Buddha. I don't know if there's any connections there with well, India. I, there were I strong connections. There yeah, I mean, there if were. If you look at Jesus's teachings, they are uh, very Buddhist. Like, mm. yeah. And we know that there were Buddhists in that area at the time. Um, well, we also have the story of Jesus's brother going over to India. So that's another separate story. I, I don't talk much about that but some people have written lots about that going yeah. up to Kashmir and all the rest of it right or Jesus himself possibly some people say Jesus but uh, in the doctrine of Adai and and some of the other apocryphal gospels I've looked at it tends to say his his twin brother because his his brother was uh, Judas Thomas Didymus and Thomas Didymus means the twin oh so Jesus had a twin brother he's Judas was his twin brother. Oh, wow. But that's not the same Judas that betrayed him, is it? Yeah. It is? Yeah, that's the, the very same. They, they, tried to, they, uh, they, they tried to blame it on Judas. But if you read Arthurian legend, Arthurian legend says that Judas was innocent. And the, the guy who turned Jesus into the Romans was Joseph of Arimathea. Oh, wow. Which is highly how they got away uh -huh. with saying that i don't know because that's highly heretical yeah. um, but anyway that's what it says uh, and you know this is a part of this 40-year chronological chasm we were talking about where the actual events of the gospel story were in the ad 60s not in the ad 20s because arthurian legend says exactly the same and and people might be wondering why i wrote this you know book on arthurian legend um and and linked it up with the gospel story well the big hero of Arthurian legend is Joseph of Arimathea. First century character, you know, the guy who took Jesus down from the cross. He's one of the big uh, hero characters of Arthurian legends. And so we get a lot of gospel type material has flown into um, or flowed through to uh, the Arthurian story. And one of those uh, stories is that Joseph of Arimathea took jesus down from the cross of course as per the you know the standard gospel story sure. in the ad in ad 30 um but then he's thrown into prison this is joseph of arimathea he's thrown into prison and he goes to sleep for three days and wakes up 40 years later oh and he hasn't aged so now he can be in the ad 60s stroke 70s and th they say he became a knight working for Emperor Vespasian, who is the AD 70s uh, emperor. So they've managed because he's in totally the wrong era as far as my, my story of the gospel story is. My gospel story takes place in the AD 60s. So Joseph of Arimathea is in completely the wrong era in the AD 30s. And they have to make him jump all the way up into the AD 60s, so he can be a knight working for Emperor Vespasian. And who was the knight called Josephus who was working for Vespasian in the AD 60s? It Josephus. was Josephus Flavius. So time and time again, we get these um, little hints that Joseph of Arimathea was Josephus Flavius. So, okay, so what is going on here? Like, why... Why are these stories? Um, Why is it jumbled up? Um, yeah, it's 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 that was Rome's doing because, uh, as I said, I think uh, at the beginning of this, um, the Edessan king started the Jewish revolt. This was the major Jewish revolt against Rome. Not people tend to look at the Jewish revolt and think it was just a re revolt amongst the Jews. You know, just something that was going on in Judea. It wasn't. This was a revolt against Rome. And so Rome had to send two legions under Vespasian, who was just an army commander at that time, to go and put down the revolt. And this revolt was led, Josephus Flavius tells us so, 
it was led by the kings of Adiabeni Edessa. So it was led by King okay. Monobazus and Kennedius, uh, who were the kings of Edessa. So this was and, a major uprising, a major anti-imperial uprising yes. that happened to be centered in Edessa and possibly Jerusalem. This is what resulted in the, the sacking of Jerusalem, correct? Yes, that's, that's correct. Okay. And so it that's was led AD by... It was led by the people called Jesus. It started in AD 66 and it went on until AD 70. It, it finished in AD 70. And the leader of the revolt was the biblical Jesus, okay. who was one of the kings of Edessa. And this is why the biblical Jesus was eventually um, uh, executed. He was uh, um, crucified uh at the end of the jewish revolt because we have this story from josephus so josephus who became a roman remember josephus st started working for the romans as a knight working for vespasian just as arthurian legend says um he was coming back from tekoa at the end of the jewish revolt and he saw the three leaders of the jewish revolt being crucified and he thought this was a stupid idea. A, they were his former compatriots before he changed sides. And B, there's no point having a hostage if, if he's just been executed. You know, it's, it's nice to have a hostage that's still alive. So he went to the, um, the governor and he asked for these people to be taken down early. They were, um, he personally took them down early. Uh, he gave them medical uh, attention. Two of them died and one of them survived. This is the, the Jesus passion story. This is the uh, crucifixion of Jesus. Three people on a cross, two of them die, one survive. And the guy who takes him down early from the cross was Josephus Arimathias. Right. And remember that Josephus his real name is Joseph, Josephus Ben Matthias. Okay. Because his father was called Matthias. So Matthews. he's Joseph, Josephus Ben Matthias. He has the Joseph, same name. son of Matthew. Yeah, um, son of Matthew. Vespasian. Okay, so, so this guy um, is, is he a military guy? He's uh, a yes, really. he was the army commander in, in command of Galilee. Okay. Uh, so initially, uh, as Josephus Flavius, he was um, an army commander in command of Galilee for the Jewish rebels. But then he changed sides and became a Roman commander. So he oh, was wow. working both sides. So uh, that's why they don't he, like him. He's a traitor. Okay. So he's, 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 a, he's a Jewish army captain, whatever, sergeant, something. Um, and he realizes that... Uh, what the what that really he's not happy with what's going on here so he changes sides and then he looks around and goes these idiots what are they doing this is a stupid way to like we're we're not leveraging the situation so he's he's sort of like always thinking about stuff obviously he's, oh, trying to he's machiavelli he really is yeah. i mean this this guy uh is the foremost you know joseph goebbels of 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 this era um he is a slippery slimy character he's the worst character you could ever ever imagine there was only one person that was ever important to to josephus flavius and that was josephus flavius but he was very canny as well the reason i think that he changed to rome is because he had been sent to rome um in about ad 62 as a prisoner so he was sent to rome to go and see uh, nero both Saul and Josephus were sent on the same ship to go and oh. see Nero in Rome. And this right. ship was uh, shipwrecked on Malta and right. they had to swim for their lives. And eventually they were taken to go and see um, Emperor Nero. And I think at that point he was turned. I mean, he was turned by the grandeur of Rome. I mean, for, for you know, a person from the provinces to go to Rome and see the vast constructions and buildings and luxury of Rome must have been awe-inspiring. But B, I think he was given um, a um, he was given no choice in what to do. I think he was bribed into working for Rome. 
because he was a prisoner, he had killed someone, etc., etc. There was many reasons why he was sent to Rome, um, and so they turned him into a Roman spy. And I think he was working for Rome ever since AD sixty-two. And he was uh, already doing a lot of uh, pretty good um, uh, marketing because in the Book of Acts we hear about how after he survived this shipwreck that you just spoke of. Um, he, he uh, not only did he heal every single person on Malta who was sick, um, but he also converted multitudes to whatever his new thing was. His, simple his Christ ju simple Judaism, yes. yes. Yeah. Um, um, which, yes, which he had already become. Either, yeah, he's either very powerful uh, or very convincing or very... Um, immodest i suppose uh well he was very erudite that's for sure he was a okay. prince of edessa or at least one of the other monarchs in this region so he was high born he was wealthy that's why because readers viewers might have noticed we're sort of beginning to conflate saul and josephus here as if they are one person and there's good reason for that um you know this is why kings came to see him in jail and asked for bribes because he was important he was aristocratic he was highly educated and you can see that from his writings he was duplicitous in in the extreme if you take him as josephus flavius when he got stuck in in um, uh, jotapata they got stuck in a, in, a, in a dungeon as it were with the romans all around them uh, having to surrender to the romans he persuaded everyone um to commit suicide and so they all did there was like 35 of them and they all committed suicide and he decided who was the next one to commit suicide what uh, so he thing? so he survived because he was the one that was choosing who was gonna commit suicide and, oh, and then at the so end of it he's, he's laughing at them he's laughing and saying well you know i deceived them all well yes <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's the sort of um, character that the Joseph, the Saul Joseph character is, you know, this is why everybody where hates Where are him. you reading that story? Oh, that comes from Josephus Flavius in his uh, Jewish wars, uh, in the siege of Jotapata, because he was the army commander in charge of the Judean forces fighting the Romans at Jotapata. But of yeah. course, after Jotapata, he comes out from this dungeon eventually and surrenders to Vespasian. But when he comes out of, of this dungeon, um, Vespasian is, is upset sort of that it took him so long to come over to him as if they already know each other, that they've already had an agreement that he would surrender and become a Roman. This is you know one of the many reasons I think he was a Roman spy because the Romans didn't understand Judea. They didn't understand Judaism. And what they wanted was eyes on the ground in Judea in the sort of mid 60s, telling them what, what on earth was going on. You know, what's all of these rumors of revolt and all of that sort of stuff, because they had no idea what was going on. And I think uh, that uh, Josephus, Saul Josephus, was working for them ever since AD 62 in his trip to go and see um, uh, Nero in Rome. Okay. So, but going so, back so to, this is leading up to the Jewish revolt then. Yeah, that was leading up to the Jewish revolt in the mid 80s. So the Romans were basically in on, they knew something was afoot and they, uh, they, had, they had their um, intelligence agencies trying to ramp up uh, ahead of time. Yeah, yeah, so they did. There, there was along, a lot of propaganda going on, yes. Yeah, okay. So then, uh, but this is why, before we forget about it, this is why, because I say the Jesus character as a king of Edessa was leading this, this Jewish revolt because it was a tax revolt against Rome because they had been promised the lands of Edessa tax-free from Rome and uh, Rome had started to try and tax them. And so they were upset and they were saying, you know, um, render unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but render unto Thea what belongs to Thea. Thea, Musa Arania. Ah, right. Thea meaning God, of course. You can mistranslate these things very easily. So these were the people who started the Jewish revolt. Josephus Flavius tells us so. 
Uh, they were the princes of Edessa that started the Jewish revolt. But at the end of the Jewish revolt, they were crucified, as we've just, just said. The three leaders of the Jewish revolt were crucified. And we have this story from the Gospels as well. And of course, Jesus was crucified while wearing a purple cloak and a crown of thorns. Why do we get these specific items within the gospel story? Well, the traditional uh, crown of the Edessan kings was a crown of thorns. Really? That's what they always wore. And it doesn't look like a, a, a circle of brambles as they try and make out, you know, trying to make out that he's some sort of rustic um, mm -hmm. nobody. It was a proper mitre. It looks like a sort of Pope's, you know, high mitre, but covered in thorns. It was a crown of thorns. Something like out and, of Game of Thrones. Yeah, I've not seen that. People have said that. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I've not seen that particular one. Well, um, it's but interesting. He was, crucified, he was crucified while wearing a purple cloak yeah. because that was the symbol of the emperor of Rome. Only the emperor could wear a purple cloak. Yuba I, when he went to um, Rome, uh, he thought it would be interesting to wear a purple cloak because he was now the king. And uh, he was executed <laughs> for wearing a purple cloak. You don't go around wearing purple cloaks just willy-nilly within the Roman Empire. It's a symbol of the emperor. And That's so what like they were going doing to a the... wedding and wearing a white dress. <laughs> Some, something like that, yeah. Um, but um, the gospel story is doing this on purpose because it's showing that the Jesus character was the pretender to the throne of Rome, that the whole goal uh, of this enterprise was to become the next emperor. And that not only changes the gospel story, it changes real history as well, because nobody seems to have linked up the fact that the whole point of the Jewish revolt had nothing to do with Judea. It was a fight for the throne of Rome, because the throne of Rome was empty. In AD 66, Nero was on his last legs and everybody knew it. In AD 68, Nero was dead and the throne of Rome was empty. And we had the year of four emperors where four emperors came and went in quick succession, everyone trying to claim the throne of Rome. And it was open for whoever had the biggest treasury and the, the strongest army to go and take it. And one of those contenders was the biblical Jesus as a king of Edessa. They were the wealthiest characters around at this time, and I have evidence for that as well. Um, and they had a large army. And if he could take Judea and Syria, which were the richest parts of the Roman Empire at that time, he would have a real springboard for taking the throne of Rome and becoming the next emperor. And all so he was stood already, between... He was already a le legitimately the ruler of Edessa, and yes. Edessa is basically just north of where this new area. So he's trying to swoop south, take over the whole eastern Mediterranean seaboard. Yes. And then from there, he, that would give him a, almost a quarter of the Roman Empire and he could easily uh, make a bid. Which, which is exactly what Vespasian did. Because remember <laughs> that Rome sent out an army commander to put down this revolt which was commanded by, by Vespasian. And it was Vespasian who won this battle and became the next emperor. So in wow. essence, this battle that we had in the, in, in, the, in the Near East at that time was a battle for the next emperor of Rome between the uh, King Isis character, the, the, the king of Edessa, and the Vespasian character, who was just an army commander. And it was the Isis character that lost if he had won that battle, he could have sailed to Rome as the next emperor. But he right. lost that battle with Vespasian, and it was Vespasian who sailed to Rome to become right. the next emperor. So Vespasian wins and heads west to Rome. Meanwhile, yep. Isa loses and heads east to India. Uh, no, he was captured and taken to Rome in chains. Okay. This is another reason why I say it was his twin brother that went to, um, to India not okay. himself. But it's interesting um, that the name Isa goes with him. Like in yes, India, because, that's what they call him. Uh, yes, they do in, in uh, Arabia as well. He's, he's known as Isa. Mm -hmm. This is why I don't think the name came from Joshua. I think that's 
that's a Jewish translation because they were determined to find this guy within Ju Judea. Oh, yeah, yeah. But he wasn't. He came from Parthia. He came from Persia. And he had an Egyptian stroke Parthian name because, okay. remember, his, his heritage was, was out of Egypt through Cleopatra. So right. he, was, he was perfectly placed to take over the whole of the known world. This is why he was trying to angle for the throne of Rome because he was descended from Rome from Greece, from Egypt, from Parthia, uh, and he could have sort of, um, he could have ruled the whole of the known world if he could find a throne to sit upon. All they had at that time was the, the, the tiny little principality of Edessa, which is literally, it's about, uh, I don't know, 70 kilometers by about 150 kilometers. It's very small. Um, but if he could sit on the throne of Rome, he could become the king of the whole world. And that was that was the goal, but it just didn't work out. Please visit our sponsor, neandertees.com, fashion for the discriminating Neanderthal. <laughs>